Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. It's in your uh, worship guide on page 6, if you want to follow along. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of God. Welcome to Trinity. We're in a series throughout the season of Advent entitled, The Light Shines in the Darkness. Advent may be a new concept or tradition for you. Advent historically has been a time of longing and waiting for the arrival of Jesus. As one author put it, Christmas is the greatest of history's many wonders, something too amazing to celebrate on just one day. And in so many ways, if you think about that phrase and that idea that this is the greatest of history's wonders, is actually very true. And that we don't want to just uh, celebrate it once for a couple of hours together with family and friends, but we want to get ready for it. And so Advent has been the season of historically for the church to get ready for the arrival of Jesus, longing for a Savior to come, waiting for somebody who can fix that which is not right. And so over these weeks, we are kind of preparing our hearts for Jesus' arrival uh, through the book of John. We are using John chapter 1 throughout all of Advent, kind of breaking down that chapter. So we're we're, we're only in that chapter For these four weeks. And so today's verses are verses 14 through 18. Uh, If someone were to come and ask you about what you believe about the meaning of Christmas and why you actually believed it, what would you say? See, if somebody came up to you and said, if you're a Christian, I heard that you're a Christian and that you believe in the traditional meaning of Christmas, why do you believe what you believe? It's an ancient story. It's got a lot of hype. It doesn't seem to have a lot of relevance for the 21st century. Why do you believe it? Verse 14 will pretty much sum up your answer. Glance at verse 14. Verse 14 says, At Christmas, the Word of God, who was there from the very beginning, took on flesh, and He dwelt, literally that word means tabernacled, or He set up a tent, or He moved into the neighborhood. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. He lived among us, God Himself. There's a recent article entitled, Christmas, the Fairy Tale That Must Be True. It's by an author by the name of Scott Sauls. Here's what Sauls writes. He says, have you ever stopped just for a second and considered the far-fetched claims of Christianity at Christmas time? During this particular holiday, Christians all over the world, millions and millions of them, pause to contemplate a first century Middle Eastern infant mothered by a teenage girl who had never been with a man born dirt poor and from a small, obscure hick town called Nazareth. This little boy, this underdog, whose life was allegedly surrounded by miracles such as a virgin birth, unexplainable healings, and resurrections, Christians say, is the answer to all of the world's problems. The hope of the universe rests on the belief that this seemingly far-fetched fairy tale is actually true. And then he says, come on, really? Yes, really. That's what we are celebrating at Christmas. If somebody came to you and said, do you really believe all of the myths and all of the the rumors that are surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, the answer would have to be, yes, we do. 
we do believe them. And one of the reasons we do believe it is if it's not true, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, if what we confess earlier as a congregation is just kind of wishful thinking and not factual historicity, if it's not real, if Jesus didn't do what he said he did, if he's not actually the Son of God, then we should be distancing ourselves from Jesus. Right? If he didn't do all of the things that are, that are claimed of Jesus, then we should say he's unsafe. We shouldn't celebrate him as a tragic martyr. We shouldn't celebrate him as a teacher of love and joy and peace. We should say that he was not right. He was not well. He claimed to be the son of God. So if all of the rumors and the myths about Jesus are not true, then we shouldn't be here. We should distance ourselves from this Jesus, but because we believe they are true, I want to help maybe make it more true for you today. Because we believe it is true, we believe it can change everything. So the three things I'm going to walk you through today from this text are Christmas and the incarnation of Jesus. Tell us a few things about number one, the way we live, number two, why we hope, and number three, how to hold on to a sense of awe. All right, so Jesus and the incarnation teach us a few things about the way we live, why we hope, and how to hold on to a sense of awe. So part one, uh, what is it going to teach us about the way we ought to live? providing a pattern for engaging the world. Glance again at verse 14. It is probably one of the most significant verses in all of Scripture. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Man, I don't, I don't know all of you. We would love to have a conversation, especially if you're joining Trinity for the first time, getting to know us. One of the things that we like to talk about is a concept of a, a mental framework, right? A moral guide. What is this idea of a, of a moral north star that each of us have? Each of us woke up with an agenda, with hopes, with dreams, with vision for your day. You knew you're going to maybe come to Trinity. Maybe you came. You've been resisting it. A friend has invited you. You've said no a hundred times. They have worn you down. You finally arrived. You've got an agenda for your day. You've got things you want to accomplish. But there is a moral framework, a worldview, right, a mental map that is guiding the decisions and the values of your day. As a human being, what you're trying to do is make sense of what life has given you. We have a diverse audience, and life has given you different circumstances, different histories, different families, and you're kind of pulling them together, and you're trying to make sense of the life that you've been given. We'll call that a moral framework, a mental map, a guide, a worldview. Each of you woke up this morning with something driving you and something guiding you. And this isn't just a Christian thing. This is a human thing. And humans who happen to live in the modern West have been handed a social framework. We've been given a mental map that says that we as individuals are the North Star, right? That's an important concept. We as individuals are the North Star. Individualism says that we should evaluate life, all of our relationships, all of our decisions through the grid of, will this make me free and happy? That's the framework that most of us work within. Will this fit into my world? This is my world. Does that decision, does that opportunity make me more free and make me more happy? If a relationship doesn't make me happy, if it doesn't give me joy, then why should I continue? If I want something, why should I deprive myself? If the greatest value is me and my comfort, 
And if certain things appear to be preventing me from developing my most authentic self, then those things are seen as barriers, and those barriers have to be knocked down. But the question is, what if we have possibly misjudged what actually makes us most happy and most free? What if we in the West have potentially been working off of the wrong map? Look again at verses 1 and 2. If you happen to have a Bible, then I'm going to read again from verse 14. This is, how the, this is how John chapter 1 begins. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you jump to verse 14, I read it a moment ago, he completes that thought that he began at the very beginning by saying, and the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And this is important. And we have seen his glory. Now, let's just ask this question. What glory did John and others see when they looked at Jesus? For John, if you were to study the book of John, the climactic moment of glory, as John explains this person named Jesus, is when Jesus is lifted up, but not upon a throne, is when he's lifted up upon a cross. When John writes his gospel and the story of Jesus, when he talks about the glory of Jesus, he's actually talking most frequently about the cross of Jesus. That's very important to know about this author. He goes, we've seen his glory. What he's really talking about is is we've seen him die. When John talks about the glory of Jesus, he's talking about his earthiness, his regularness, the fact that he's extremely ordinary, that he laughs, that he cries, that he enjoys a good cup of coffee, that he's a carpenter to get splinters in his hands, that he's a man, that he's ordinary, that he's average. He goes, God himself found his way into this human container with flesh, blood, and bone, and that's the glory that we saw. We have seen his glory, and he looked like a man. See, that's the way that John wants us to think. Now, in the book of Exodus, there's a well-known story where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. It's a story where he receives the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is having this conversation with God on the mountain, Moses says to God, God, there's a couple things I want, but please show me your glory, right? Pretty bold request. But here's a unique circumstance on a unique mountain, a conversation between God and Moses. And he leans into God and goes, God, I want to see your glory. And here's how God responds to Moses. The Lord replied to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, Moses. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see, the, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What in the world's going on there? Okay, they're on the mountain. Moses wants to see the glory of God. God goes, Listen, that's a noble request. But here's how it works. If you see me in full, that'll be your last breath and your last heartbeat. You can't see my full glory. You can't contain my full glory. But I know uh, you want to see a little bit. 
So there's this rock over here. There's this little inlet in it. I'm going to put you in it. I don't know how he does it. I'm going to pick him up, pluck him up, teaches him to climb. I don't know what happens. But he goes, go over here on this little cliff. Go in the inlet. I'm going to pass by you. And as I walk by you, Moses, I'm going to put my hand against the cleft in the rock. Because if the glory starts to seep out while I'm walking by, you're not going to make it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my hand against you. And when I walk past you, I'm going to take my hand off. And when I walk past and you glimpse out of that little inlet, you're going to get to see the backward part of my glory. That's what he says. So that's what happens. So he puts him in the inlet. He puts his hand over him. God walks by. Moses is kind of going, what in the world's happening out there? Takes his hand off. God takes his hand off. Moses peeks his face out. And the text says that Moses walks back into camp and my man is glowing. Okay? This is a big deal. He doesn't get the front of God's glory. He gets just like the backward part of God's robe. And he comes off the mountain and he is shining like the sun. And he doesn't know it. And the people are scared. And they're going, what happened to Moses? Right? What happened on the mountain? He'd had an exposure to the backward parts of God's glory. When John writes, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. He's talking about the same glory that Moses was experiencing in the cleft of the rock. He is talking about the same glory that impacted a man by the name of Uzzah when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. When he touched it, God's presence was there, God's glory was there, and Uzzah had taken his last breath. This is the same glory that motivated the priests in the Old Testament to tie a rope around their waist when they went into the Holy of Holies that one day a year because there's the potential that if you go into the, into the holy presence of God, you might not make it back out. This is the same glory that the Old Testament paints a picture of. And they go, all of that glory, we see it in the flesh and blood container named Jesus. He's not glowing. He looks so average, so ordinary, but we've seen his glory captured there. If anyone, here's the point, if anyone should be individualistic, if anyone has the right to be narcissistic, to ask the question, will this make me free and will this make me happy, it has to be God. You see, if anybody has the ability, when you come into their presence, to make you glow, right? If this individual, because you have looked at the backward parts of his glory, and he lights up your face, you have to say to yourself, he has the right to be on top, to be served, to be worshiped, to be glorified, to be number one. But when you see Jesus arrive, he doesn't take that route, doesn't take that path. He is guided by a very different North Star. Notice that Jesus isn't guided by the question of personal satisfaction and personal comfort. He's not asking, how could this make me happy? Will this fit into my world without a major inconvenience? No. Jesus and the arrival of God's Son is guided by a different principle altogether, and it's the value of adjusting your world for the sake of somebody else. This isn't, how can you fit into my world? This is, how can I adjust my world to suit yours? And see, and that is the principle of incarnation. 
That's what Jesus is doing. I mean, he is the grand individual who says all that comfort, all that happiness, that's secondary. He says, I've come to give. Right? I've come to display what it means to be truly human. At Christmas, God adjusted his world to meet us in ours. Christmas says that we can never reach God on our own, that there's no religious deal that we can make. We can't swap good deeds and moral behavior for a heavenly reward. And so God steps into our world to win heaven and a whole lot more, offering us life with him as a gift and not a wage. The incarnation is a decision to adjust your world for the sake of somebody else. It is a downward movement. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. He says, in the incarnation, we catch sight of a new key principle. The power of the higher, just as insofar it is truly higher, to come down. The power of the greater to include the less. When you take a brief look at the ministry of Jesus, you notice that he has maybe an intriguing, ironic ministry. He is spending time with people that you would not expect him to spend time with. He has dinner with a man by the name of Zacchaeus, and the moment he, he says yes to Zacchaeus, he gets flack, he gets pushed back. Why would you have a meal with him? Because a meal with him means friendship. You notice that there's places and times where Jesus has an agenda. He's going to the big city. He's got people he's trying to love. He's got sermons he's got to give. But when he hears the cries for help and the cries for mercy, Jesus always stops. There's an individual who can't see. And what you see in the narrative of Jesus and the story of Jesus, he gets down in the dirt with an individual. He makes kind of a mud solution out of his own saliva, sitting in the dirt with this blind man so that he can heal his eyes. Jesus spends time with children, even though he is literally the most important human being on the planet. This backwards, upside-down, uh, totally intriguing, unique ministry of Jesus, guided by this principle called incarnation. See, the principle of the higher coming down, the power of the greater to include the less. And if Jesus is truly the Word made flesh, if He's the Word that was in the beginning, and as the Bible teaches us, if you were made in the image of this God, that when you catch a glimpse of who Jesus is, how He lived, how He loved, the principle by which He guided His entire life, His North Star, if you're made in the image of God, then you have to say there are profound implications for the way in which I'm supposed to relate to other people. I'm made in His image. Look what He did. Look how He lived. Look how He loves. I'm supposed to be like Him. In simplest terms, what this looks like is the best version of love that we can find. That's what incarnation means. God became a man in order to show us what love looks like. What does love really look like on the ground? John tells us two times. Look at verse 14 and verse 17. He tells us twice. In verse 14, he writes, we have seen his glory, glory as of the, uh, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He says it twice. He goes, here's the principle of the incarnation. You want to know what it looks like? Truth and grace. The life and ministry of Jesus could be characterized by this perfect balance of grace and and truth. But we are not talking, this is very important, we are not talking about a 50-50 split. 
50% of the time, he's gracious. 50% of the time, he's truthful. Perfect balance. In the life and the person of Jesus, what you have is 100% gracious, 100% truthful, 100% of the time. And what people found in the person of Jesus is that he was irresistibly attractive. They've never seen that before. You've never experienced that before. The world had never seen it. Somebody who could live like this. Truth without grace is fundamentalism. And it doesn't warm your heart. And grace without truth is liberalism. Culturally, we don't understand the combination of the two. Culturally, we bend towards one or the other. Generally, we bend towards uh, all grace, no truth in our modern moment. All grace, no truth. I want what I want. Don't tell me I can't be happy. I need you to condone all of my decisions. Don't condemn anything that I've decided. I need grace upon grace upon grace from you. It doesn't matter what I'm choosing. It's my life. It's my freedom. It's my authentic self. I want grace from you. You end up giving me a little bit of truth. I bristle and I push back. Oftentimes in the church, though, we've given the opposite. We have consistently given all truth, no grace. And people have assumed that Christianity equals moralism. We are more moral than we are uh, enlivened by a sense of God's goodness, the, the beauty of the gospel. We have become more moral. We love truth. I'll tell you truth. But where's the grace? See, the ministry of Jesus was this perfect combination of both. One example, and let me move on. John chapter 8, very famous story of Jesus uh, having a confrontation with some religious leaders. They bring a woman who's been caught in adultery to his attention. They want to know what, they, what Jesus thinks of this woman, what he should do. What do you recommend, Jesus? They essentially wanted to trap him and catch him, so they question him. But Jesus did not play by their rules. He essentially says to these religious leaders, who of you in this audience who've carried all these stones here, which of you is without sin? Let that person throw the stone first. And so they see Jesus. He's writing something in the sand. We don't know exactly what he's writing, but the story clearly tells us that one by one, those individuals who brought the rocks, brought the woman, they, in a sense, dropped their stones, and they walked off, and they left the stones. This is a tragedy. They left the stones with the one person who was without sin. Jesus just said, he who is without sin, he can cast the first stone. They left the stones with the one guy without sin. And he doesn't pick him up. He doesn't condemn her. But he enters into her world. He has a conversation with her. He probably talks about her life. But he forgives her, number one. He doesn't throw the stone, but he throws her love. But then on the other side of it, what does he say as she exits the scene? He says, go and sin no more. Which one was it? Was it truth or grace? See, he entered in and he loved her. He met her. He understood her story. He sat in the dirt with her. And then as she leaves, he says, live a different way. Grace has met you. Now let truth be a part of the story too. It's not either or. It's in perfect balance in the person of Jesus and it's irresistible. Some of you may be saying to yourself, you're telling me there's all sorts of implications for the people around me, the situations around me at work and at home? And the answer is yes, resoundingly. Incarnation and love that looks like this has profound implications. Some of you may be saying, but you don't understand. The people around me are so difficult. Let me just say this. So were you. 
right? So am I. The cross looks me in the eye and says, Jesus had to lay down his life for me. I'm not easy. I cost the life of God's son. So when we think about entering into difficult situations, difficult people, balancing grace and truth, and incarnating into their world, we kind of bristle. But the gospel says, look deeply and see that there's a resource for you so that you can enter into that world too. Don't get worried. The bulk of my sermon, three quarters of it, it's point one, all right? Point two and three are much shorter. Christmas and the incarnation talk and teach us about, number one, the way we're supposed to live. Incarnation, the principle of the lower towards, the higher towards the lower, right? Entering in with grace and truth. Number two, it teaches us about why we hope. Uh, Hope can be defined as wanting something to happen or to be true and usually having a good reason to think that it might. Usually having a good reason to think that it might. Now, we all hope for a lot of things in Southern California. We hope for snow on Christmas. It's not going to happen. We hope for peace on earth. Some of you are hoping that a certain girl will say yes to coffee. Some of you are hoping that a certain guy won't ask. There's all sorts of things that we are hoping for this season. Uh, But when it comes to an honest look at our world, what hope do we have that the difficult things that you encounter from day to day are going to get better? What hope do you have that violence or racism or classism, or homelessness, or real environmental issues, or drug addictions, or the refugee crisis, just to name a few, will one day have a joyful solution. What real hope do you have for things like that? Now, we all hope for a world at peace. Some of us just want a family that can get along. But only the Christian version of Christmas actually says that you have a real reason for that hope, and it doesn't come from within the system. You see, it doesn't come from within you and me. It's not something we can develop or discover. It's something that has to come from the outside and make its way into our reality. How many of you like Western movies? Any Western movie fans? Like three of you? Come on. Shame on you, right? If you like a good Western movie, I love a good Western movie. Um, All the plot lines are the same. So if you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all, which is essentially you've got a family who was out east and they decided they wanted to move west and they move into no man's land USA and they move into this little kind of a, um, I don't know, a little town, right? A little town. Uh, There's sagebrush everywhere. They look around. There's not a lot of hope. (laughs) There's not a lot of green. There's not a lot of anything. And so they move into this little town, and quickly they realize that there's oppression, that there's an enemy, that there's corporate evil coming in to take all of their gold or silver or oil. There's some kind of some band of ruffians who come in to steal the joy and steal the resources of this little town. So they're kind of looking around going, oh, man, we should have stayed out east. But really what they're thinking is we need help, right? We need a solution to this. And the solution in the Westerns, it never comes from inside the little town. It always comes from the Lone Ranger, right? Okay, so there's somebody on the outside looking in. There is a hero who comes riding into town almost every single time to save the day, fix the solution, heal the town. The solution is never inside. It's always outside. And that story has been used over and over again, even in new, what I'm going to call space westerns, like The Mandalorian. Any of you watching that? If you have Disney+, Plus, I mentioned it last week. Episode 5, a simple fishing village is being pillaged by an evil empire, and so a Mandalorian, an outside hero, 
has to step in and save the day. It's a story over and over, just with new characters and in new ways. See, hope has to be anchored upon something real, or else it's not hope. It's wishful thinking. And John writes his entire book, his entire gospel, it's chock full of reasons to hope. But here in the first few verses, what he does is he begins to anchor us. He gives us a reason. And the first is this. When John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, what he is saying is we were eyewitnesses. Now, we've seen the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We've seen it all. We were there. His life, this is what you have to wrestle with if you're on the outside of Christianity looking in. The life of Jesus was historical. Jesus was born somewhere around 6 BC during the reign of Caesar Augustus while a man by the name of Quirinius was governor over Syria, while a man named Herod Antipas was ruling over the region of Galilee. John says, we have seen him. We have seen his glory. We're going to give you the exact date when he showed up. We have seen it. You've got to wrestle with the historical reality. Number two, there was a prophet by the name of John the Baptist, <clears throat> and he was the first in a long line of witnesses to this man, Jesus. And John cries out in verse 15, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. There's a long line of people who are going to step up to the plate and say, I understand who this man is. John was one of the first. He's one of the closest. He is a comrade in arms. He is a cousin of Jesus, but he gives testimony to his cousin over and over again, and he's one of the first people whose life was taken because of his connection to Jesus. Thirdly, this is very important. Jesus can accomplish what the law never could. Listen to that. Jesus can accomplish what the law never could. Glance at verse 17. John writes, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. According to Christianity, the law was a gracious gift that God gave to humanity, but the law could never change anyone's heart. Never. And so when the heart changer comes onto the scene, the law has a different place. It doesn't mean the law doesn't apply, but it has a different position in our lives. And what happens is when Jesus comes onto the scene, John writes, the, the reaction is grace upon grace. The result is grace upon grace. Jesus is here, right? Grace upon grace. And then lastly, when John says that the word dwelt among us, the literal translation, as I said at the very beginning, says that this word tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. God moved into the neighborhood, and he really had no plans of ever leaving. When our family lived in a different neighborhood, when we lived in Mira Mesa, one of my close friends came to town. Uh, he was from Boston. I think he was going to do a small retreat when I was working with college students uh, for a couple of years. And he came from Boston, flew him into town. He, he got a rental car, drove up to the retreat site. He came back into Mira Mesa, into that part of San Diego. We're probably about an hour from taking him to the airport. We stop at the gas station, and I hop in his little white car. Still remember, still remember the car clearly. And I said, hey, let me go fill up the car for you. So I hop in, backed it up. I'm an incredible driver, but I did hit that big metal thing that's right there by the, uh, by the gas pumps. You know, they're not supposed to be there. So I started backing up, and I nailed it with the bumper. We're about to return the rental car. How many of you ever get the insurance on the rental car? It's always decline, right? We always decline the insurance. I needed it that day. And so I backed his car. I'm not even on his probably, you know, I don't know what they call the contract. Right? He's going to have to say I, he backed it into this. But I said, guess what? My neighbor has a side gig, and he is a 
bumper repair specialist. Have no fear. And so we take the car over to my neighbor, knock on his door and say, hey, man, I'm a really good driver, but I backed into this gas station thing. He said, man, I got you. He goes to work, takes him 35 minutes to get one of those suction cups, pops it out, a couple of scratches, fills them in. I threw some dirt on it, kind of smeared it. That's the type of pastor I am. And so then we took it right back. Nobody asked one question. Hallelujah, right? Okay. <laughs> I had a reason to hope that day, okay? I had a reason to hope that day. It's because somebody had moved into my neighborhood who could fix the solution, who could fix the problem. And when John says, the word tabernacled among us, God moved into the neighborhood, what you start to say to yourself is, man, I have a neighbor who has tremendous resources. He is a source of light and life and joy and meaning and purpose and identity, but he's also the great consoler. He understands rejection. He understands what it means to be hurt by a friend. He understands what it means to taste death but even just for a moment, then to defeat it. We have this neighbor, an incredible neighbor with incredible resources who moved into our world. And when you believe in him, you tap into him, you connect to him. He says, I've come to tabernacle amongst you, and I've got no plans of leaving. And yes, you say, but didn't Jesus leave? Yes, he left, but didn't he send his spirit? And isn't he said, I will be with you forever? Didn't he say, I will be with you, never leave you, never forsake you? I am Emmanuel, God with you. This is the resource of Christmas. Right? This is what we long for. We have it in part, but we look forward to it in full. What an incredible neighbor. That's why we hope. Well, my last part, how to hold on to awe. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a quote for you, and then I'm going to close it. Okay, this is a longer quote, but it's a beautiful quote from Dorothy Sayers in her book entitled Creed or Chaos, written back in 1995. Christmas and the Incarnation teaches how to hold on to all. Here's what she writes. Official Christianity of late years has been having what is known as bad press. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that has ever staggered the imagination of man, and the dogma is the drama. The plot pivots upon a single character, and the whole action is the answer to a single central problem, what think ye of Christ? The church's answer is categorical and uncompromising, and it is this, that Jesus, bar Joseph, the son of Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth, was in fact and in truth and in the most exact and literal sense of the words... Um, the God by whom all things were made. His body and brain, brain were those of a common man. His personality was a personality of God, so far as that personality could be expressed in human terms. He was not a kind of demon pretending to be a human. He was in every respect a genuine living man. He was not merely a man so good as to be like God. He was God. Now, we may call that doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him to find God, a better man than himself, is an astonishing drama indeed. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news. 
those who did hear it for the first time actually called it news, and good news at that. Though we are apt to forget that the word gospel ever meant anything so sensational. Here's my question as I close. What will help you maintain a sense of awe over the greatest news that the world has ever heard? And I think you only have to ask one or two questions. And the first question is this. Why did the word become flesh? Verse 14. And the resounding answer is for you. For you. Now, now listen. Not for us. Don't make it generic. For you. Why did God lay aside his royalty? Why did he come in the form of a servant? Why did he willingly die? And the Bible's answer is that the creator became a man for you. You have to sit in it for a moment, no? For me? Not just us? Yeah, for me. And that's where the awe comes from. You sit in that long enough, you talk to people about that, you hash that out in community, and your life can be so different. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus for you. I want to be a church that talks about that a lot. I want us to try it on for size. Sometimes it feels like it doesn't fit. It's an old story that we have to breathe awe back into. Help me. Right, let's help each other. But that is what this story is about. And let's never forget that God loved you so much. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, it's easy to fall into what uh, Dorothy Sayers called um, dull dogma. But Christianity is too profound. It is the greatest drama the world has ever seen. If it's true, it changes everything. If it's not, we should run. But if it's true that God wrote himself into our narrative, that he became a man so that our lives could be different, so we could be forgiven, so that he could achieve heaven for us and give it as a gift, and not just heaven, but life right here, right now, on earth can be different because of Jesus? Man, what a story. Oh, Lord, would you breathe awe into me because awe is the seedbed of worship. And I woke up this morning, and I'm going to give worship to all sorts of things. You might be one of many, but I want a heart that beats solely for you because your heart beats exclusively for us. What kind of God are you? We, have may, we may have been given so many different versions of that story that we have a hard time believing the real, true, pure gospel. But it is good, and it is good news, and it can change our reality. So help us to try it on. Give us people that we trust to question it with. And I pray we'd find you to be better than we ever imagined. Make Christmas profound this year. In Jesus' name, amen.